Hello, everyone. We originally recorded this episode with Professor Laurie Aris on November 11th, 2021, as part of our Learning About Learning webinar series. We're delighted to release it now as an episode of our podcast. Laura is a scholar of American religion, especially American Judaism, and in this episode, we spoke about a study that she had recently completed that's now been published as a chapter titled A Chavruta in the Museum in the edited volume called Portraits of Adult Jewish Learning. Laura talked with me about how she developed a new method of gathering information about the experience of visitors to a Jewish museum in order to understand their learning in a much broader way, not just what information they might have acquired, but how it made them feel, what associations they made to other ideas and other experiences, and especially how they interacted with the partners with whom they visited the museum. This conversation is particularly relevant to Jewish educators and Jewish professionals because it helps to broaden our perspective on what counts as a meaningful Jewish educational experience, a Jewish learning experience, and what kinds of learning happen within those contexts. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Laura as much as I enjoyed talking with her. Hello, and welcome to the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Center for Studies in Jewish Education at Brandeis University. My name is John Levison. I'm the director of the Mandel Center, and I'm delighted to bring you another installment in our podcast, Learning About Learning. At the Mandel Center, we are committed to advancing the field of Jewish educational scholarship, especially scholarship on teaching and learning, in order to make a deep and lasting difference on the lives of learners and the vibrancy of the Jewish community. That's our mission. We know that there's great scholarship being done in the field of Jewish education, but it's not always accessible. And even when it is, it's not always obvious why people in the field of Jewish education should care about it. That's what this podcast is about, making really interesting scholarship on Jewish education accessible and talking with scholars about why it matters. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy learning about learning as much as I do. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Our guest today for the second session of the series is my friend and colleague, Laura Yaris. Laura is an assistant professor at Michigan State University and also an affiliated scholar at the Mandel Center for Studies in Jewish Education. Some of her scholarship focuses on the history of 19th century Jewish education, and maybe we'll have an opportunity to talk about that in another session in the future. But today, we're talking about a piece of her other work, other focus, which is on how Jews and sometimes non-Jews experience and learn from Jewish arts and culture. Laura, welcome. It's good to see you. Laura, we're talking today about um, your recently completed article. The title is A Chavruta in the Museum, and it's going to be coming out in a volume about adult Jewish learning. And the article is about how a group of people interact with exhibits in the National Museum of American Jewish History. So let's start off by just understanding how and why did you end up following a bunch of people around the museum? Well, thank you, John, and thank you for the opportunity to participate in this series. It's really lovely to be in conversation. So as you mentioned, this study was part of a broader project looking at Jewish learning in cultural arts context. It was a project that began um, in collaboration with my friend and colleague, Ben Jacobs, um, who is a professor in the education department at uh, George Washington University. It started 
when we were colleagues there at GW um, with a concept paper exploring the opportunities of studying Jewish learning in cultural arts contexts with the purview of thinking about this as a broader research study. So a short while after completing that concept paper, we decided to test out the methodology that we thought about in that concept paper. And at that point, I took it forward as a solo project. And this was in the summer of 2019, which feels like a time long ago when I could go to museums and interact with people, invite them into museums with me. And in this project, we really wanted to understand the different kinds of learning that could happen in cultural arts contexts, specifically in episodic leisure time settings. So the population that we were thinking about for this study weren't necessarily folks who were engaged in Jewish institutions or who had signed up for an, an activity they might have called Jewish learning with a capital L. Right? This was not a learning series or some kind of, of long-term program right? that they thought of as, as Jewish learning. This was a couple of hours on a weekend that they decided to spend in a museum in downtown Philadelphia. And for many of the participants in this study, it really was a couple of hours that they shoehorned in between their other leisure activities. They started by going to the gym and then they had brunch and then they went to the museum for a couple of hours and they saw some bits and, and skipped other parts of the exhibit and then they went off to do whatever it is that they wanted to do the rest of the afternoon. But we had a strong sense that there was some very real and very deep learning happening, even in these very kind of episodic, very leisure time settings. And we wanted to get a, a closer look at what that learning would look like. Because the population that were included in this study, which were millennials, folks between the ages of approximately 21 to 39, folks who were not members of, of Jewish institutions, who were not members of synagogues or, or JCCs, for the most part in particularly demographic research, those folks have been dismissed as somewhat off the radar of Jewish institutional life, as folks who are maybe not so interested in Jewish learning, not so interested in, in Jewish experiences. And we wanted to test out whether that was true, particularly as the cultural arts had been identified as something of a gateway for non-religious Jews, to use the parlance of some earlier Jewish demographic studies, religious nuns. The cultural arts had been framed as a gateway that might interest people in being in Jewish spaces. And so by really training a sharp lens on the experience of a cultural art setting, we hope to uncover what might have been really going on for a group of Jewish millennials who identified in different Jewish ways. Great. I'm glad you mentioned the original concept paper that you worked on with our colleague Ben Jacobs. And if folks click through to the project page, they'll see some more about the project and some of the other areas of focus to which you've brought this project. And also they'll notice that we also have welcomed the partnership of Sharon Avni as the project has continued, which has been a, a great partnership. So help us understand, how do you actually try to understand learning in the museum? What do you actually do to get a hold of what people are learning? It's a great question. And the truth is that there are as many methodologies for capturing learning as there are methodology, as there are types of learning in and of themselves. So the first task is really to identify what are the kinds of learning that we're interested in? What are we interested in knowing? If it's a case of content acquisition, right? Do we want to know whether people know the differences between reform and conservative and orthodox Judaism as a result of visiting this museum? Well, then the methodology that we use for assessing that learning 
becomes relatively apparent. We can do an exit interview or an exit survey, right? And have them um, answer a series of questions that assess whether they have acquired the correct content, whether they now know things that they might not have known before entering the museum. However, for me, that was a sort of limited way of thinking about learning because I did a lot of reading and a lot of, I had a lot of conversations with colleagues at my institution, Michigan State, in our education department, particularly with some of my colleagues who are interested in arts and culture education. And they encourage encouraged me to think about learning in a museum setting, not only in terms of new content acquisition, but also in terms of affective learning. So to think about the opportunities that the museum affords through text panels, through images, through objects, through sounds, through multimedia experiences, for visitors to learn not only new things about the content matter, but also new things about themselves. That they have affective experiences in the museum, that their skin is made to tingle, that they are encouraged to say, huh, I didn't know that, or wow, and point something out. And in fact, much of the museum education literature that I drew upon in designing the methodology for this study really encouraged a kind of whole person approach to thinking about learning, to understanding not only what people said about what they learned, but also about how their body moved, right? Did they peer in more closely to look at the text? Did they point something out? Did they recoil? Was there some kind of gesture? Because all of those things indicate that there is a learning experience happening and particularly that there might be an affective learning experience. So, I mean, that you're talking about like a much richer ethnographic data set. So how do you actually capture that stuff? Yeah. So I used two approaches to capturing my data for this study. I asked every participant in this study to carry a voice recorder, which they surreptitiously slipped into their pockets and that captured their conversations as they went around the museum. Of course, we they uh, agreed to do that and signed all sorts of you know consent forms and uh, ethically approved that, that method of research. And when that methodology worked, worked well, and it, and it did work well throughout the study, most participants forgot that the tape recorder was there in their pockets and it captured their conversations. So the other thing that's really interesting about a leisure time setting like a museum is that people typically go with someone else. They go with a friend, a family member, a significant other, a number of the participants in this study. And I should say there were, there were 30 participants, 30 young adults who identified them as Jewish and some as not Jewish who participated in this study. And a lot of the participants came as a date activity. It's a fun thing to do with your girlfriend, boyfriend, partner, husband, wife on a, on a weekend is, is go to a museum. And so as they were walking around the museum, the tape picked up the conversations that they had and the dialogue that they had. And as implied by the title of the article that you referenced earlier, I think that we can think of those conversations as a kind of chavruta. The second part of the methodology, I also interviewed people when they finished the museum. We had an exit interview and I took that interview not as an opportunity to grill them on things that they had learned and new content they had acquired, but rather to understand a little bit more about them as whole people. When they applied to participate in the study, they filled out a form that indicated how they identified themselves Jewishly. Did they think of themselves as identified with a denomination or as secular, cultural, or just Jewish? And the interview was really an opportunity to try and understand the holistic picture of their lives and also how they thought about an arts experience like visiting a museum. Yeah. And in the paper itself, I mean, one of the wonderful, just delightful parts of the paper is that you bring us into some of these conversations. So we get to eavesdrop on some of these rich conversations um, as they're going through the museum. And, and you really kind of bring to life the, um, the richness of that 
experience, right? Which it's very clear once we think about it, that of course, there are rich conversations that happen around the content or prompted by the content on on the walls and on the exhibits. So at the 30,000 foot level, what do you think the story is from this study of the museum? I think there's a lot of things that we can take away from this study. And so I'll I'll list just a couple of them. So as you intimated in your summary just then of some of those sort of fly on the wall experiences of, of people's conversations, as you mentioned, the conversations that they had didn't always stay exactly on topic. In having a Hevruta, a dialogue over an, an object, an exhibit, a, a map even, frequently, as in Hevruta conversations over texts, right, which is a context that we might be more familiar with, those of us who think about sites of Jewish learning, frequently the, the stimulus, right, in this case, maybe a map, maybe an object, prompted learning that was actually about something different altogether, but was equally as rich. So for example, one couple who participated in the study spent a really long time dialoguing over a map, having a Chavruta conversation over a map. The map, though, was not the object of their conversation. The map was their stimulus for talking about the Jewish immigration histories of their own family, which is something that they realized that they hadn't had chance to share with each other. And it led them into this beautiful, somewhat rambling, but very deep conversation about one grandmother fleeing Nazi-occupied Poland and finding herself in France and, and changing her name and what it was like to, to live as a Jew in Nazi-occupied Europe and memories of the grandmother years later. So it was a very rich, very deep Jewish conversation, right? That was not prima facie about about the map but that, that conversation wouldn't have happened without the map yeah. so that, that's one thing that that i would say is that i think that just as we know that in hevrusa dialogue over text for example the conversations can evolve in really interesting ways in which the, the text acts as a stimulus so too we should not be surprised to see those things in a museum setting either and in fact the kinds of people that might be interested in coming to a museum, right, really expand the range of participants that we think about when we think about who is interested in Jewish learning. So as I mentioned, um, none of the participants in this study were members of a synagogue or a Jewish institution. That's not how they thought about themselves. That wasn't the priorities that they had in their lives currently. They were young adults, most part recent college graduates in graduate school or just finished graduate school. Their lives were in different places. But that, that didn't mean that they weren't interested in, in Jewish topics. In fact, they were they were really deeply interested in Jewish topics. Sometimes that was because they had their own particular commitments as people who were religious practitioners. Other times it came from simply the quirks of their personality. So one participant, for example, said, hours and hours in the museum. And he was constantly Googling on his phone. He was constantly looking up things, trying to increase his knowledge. And in the interview, he talked extensively about how things that he had seen in the museum reminded him of things he had read about in books or seen in documentaries. And quite simply, he was an autodidact. He was someone who loved learning for the sake of learning, happened to be Jewish and so had an interest in Jewish things, but was the kind of person that would never have shown up to a, a synagogue setting or a, um, a quote unquote sort of Jewish communal experience, but he loved he loved to learn and he loved American history. And so he had a very, very rich experience in the museum as well. Another thing that I would notice too, is that one of the things that just as with the example of that participant, he was prompted to recall things that he had learned in, in other contexts. Frequently, I heard from participants that the museum helped them contextualize things that they had learned in, in other contexts and, and put them into the, the broader sweep of American Jewish history. 
So, for example, one couple, as they were going through the exhibit on the 20th century, the floor that deals with the 20th century, they saw the, the poster that read, send a salami to your boy in the army. Yes. And they had a conversation. Said, oh, we saw that. We saw that when we went to Katz's Deli. Right. And we, we did see that when we went to Katz's Deli. And then they started to read the text panels. And they said, oh, that makes sense now. It must have been really hard to get kosher meat in the military. So that's why you'd want to send your boy in the army of salami. <laughs> um, and so you have this sort of continuum, right? And I think yeah. that for those of us who have interest in Jewish learning, it, it reminds us that all learning experiences happen within the continuum of a person's life, their social, their social life, and um, as, as well as their uh, life in Jewish spaces. That was very much evident from this study. One of the things that that example makes me think about is the different kinds of authority that people ascribe to different settings. So they saw something in Katz's Deli, that's a commercial establishment, but then they saw something in a museum that they felt kind of made sense of. And presumably, crossing the threshold into a museum, presumably you're inclined to grant some authority to the things that you read You read on the wall. So that's a really interesting example of how they use the second piece of information to provide a kind of validation or contextualization for the first. In the article itself, you zoom in on two romantic couples. And you said some of them were romantic couples, but not all them. And I'm wondering what that in particular helps us to see. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So the two romantic couples that I focus on in this article were both couples of mixed religious backgrounds. One was an interfaith couple and the other was a couple, both of whom identified currently as Jewish. But one partner in the couple had been born to a, a Jewish mother who had converted to Christianity and, and he was raised Christian and as an adult decided to explore his Jewish roots and eventually decided to pursue a formal conversion. Um, but he was raised, all of his formative experiences were Christian ones. And so he very much identified himself as a, as a person whose background, his formative background was in uh, Christian religious spaces. So again, when we think about who's doing Jewish learning, who's interested in, in Jewish learning and the kinds of Jewish learning that a young adult might participate in, right? We might find that we most readily think of synagogue settings or limud settings, right? Settings that are defined as learning with a capital L in which there is maybe a source sheet in, in front of people, in which the, the people who show up, right, are people who have some kind of commitments, right, to being in Jewish spaces and, and to learning about Jewish things. The choice to focus on cultural arts, right? In this example, a, a museum, but in the broader study, we also look at music, we look at television, we look at different kinds of theatrical productions as well. We're able to capture a much, much broader demographic, right? We're able to capture a demographic of people who might wear their Jewish commitments maybe in less formal or less institutional ways, but nevertheless show that those commitments are still very much there. One of the things that I saw often with the participants in the museum study were that these were folks who, if you plotted them on the, the Pew study, right, would come out um, by virtue of the questions that demographers have tended to ask to map American Jewish engagement as people who did not care very much about Judaism, about being Jewish, about their own Jewish self-identity. But then you listen to what they say when you invite them to a setting that feels accessible, right? When you invite them to a setting that is a museum that they have historical interests in, for example, as, as educated people, you see very different kinds of conversations and very different dimensions to their personality. So you asked me to zoom out to, to 3,000 feet. And I, I think that 
the data from this study and I hope from the broader project can be a, a signal to those of us who are interested in studying Jewish learning to, to cast our net really broadly when we think about what a Jewish educational setting is and, and who's involved in the business of Jewish learning. And I think here scholars of Jewish education can, can take their cues from Jewish historians. As you mentioned, um, one of the two hats that, that I wear, my training in the field of religious studies included both historical and, and ethnographic research methods. And I think wearing my historian hat for a second, one of the things that we know from doing research on the Jewish past is that if we want a full picture of Jewish communal life to show up, then we have to look at more than just texts. We have to look at more than just text study. Because, for example, if we look at, at Jewish life in the past and only focus on text study, on, on synagogue settings, right, we're going to exclude a lot of people and, and particularly we're going to exclude women. Right? We're not going to see a lot of women showing up if we only focus on those records. But as, for example, Laura Arnold-Liebman has shown in, in her recent work, when we expand the corpus of materials that we look at, when we focus on objects, for example, we see women coming into the picture. Right, Their stories might not be told in certain institutional records, but we can tell their stories by looking at objects and materials. And so, too, I think that when we look at cultural art settings, Right, we see people coming into the picture of Jewish education in ways that if we had only focused on those sort of capital L settings of, of classrooms of, of text study, they, they might just have never been a part of the story at all. We've got a couple of questions that have come in from the audience. One of the questions has to do with in person. It seems like so long ago that you could write that there are people in, in person, but whether Based on what you heard from this data, um, you know, listening very, very carefully to these 30 people going through this experience, what do you think carries over to a virtual format and what might not? That's a good question. And I'm going to have to take the cop-out answer of saying I'm, I'm not sure. I, I haven't studied virtual museum tours. But as the project has, has evolved and as Sharon and I have been working together on expanding this project and including other sites with the aim of, of ultimately this being a book project, um, we have looked at other virtual settings. And one of the first projects that we looked at in our new COVID reality was the webcast Saturday Night Seder, which was a Broadway themed Passover spectacular. And there we, we did see different but equally deep and rich forms of Jewish learning. So people might not have been having those in-person conversations. We might not have been able to map the physical gestures and the ways in which they show their responses to an experience in their bodily language, right, in their bodily responses to an educational stimulus, right? But we saw other kinds of modalities being deployed, right? The use of a Zoom and Google Meets to convene people across huge geographical expanses and also convene people, in the case of Saturday Night Seder, celebrities that would probably have never had the flexibility based on their demanding Hollywood and Broadway schedules to participate in a project like that all of a sudden could be marshaled on, yeah. on Zoom. So affordances and limitations. Yeah, I also, as I'm thinking about what I learned from this paper, and I imagine that there are some online settings that provide the time and the space. And by space here, I also mean a kind of protected intimacy, or intimate space, right? Because one of the things you can do in a museum is you can separate yourself physically from other people, you and the person you're going through the experience with, and the recorder's in the pocket. So <laughs> we're just listening. And some online settings allow for that, and some don't. We're almost out of time. So as a, a final question, very briefly, what surprised you? What really jumps out as a surprise from this study? I think that the thing that most surprised me from doing this study is just how off topic the conversations became as participants went around the museum. 
And I think that when we only track and map what people have learned in terms of, of content acquisition, right? The thing that I did not know that I now know is we miss so much of the texture of a Jewish learning experience, right? We miss out on all of the emotive dimensions, all of the affective dimensions, and all of the dimensions of people's personal relationship building, right? So you asked earlier about the two romantic couples. And one of the things that was so interesting about about being a fly on the wall of their Sunday morning date as they went around the museum is that they learned things about each other and they they strengthened their relationship. One couple, as they looked around the museum and were looking at some of the primary sources, talked about the different names that were included in their sources and discussed whether they would be good names for their future children. Their children, that's right. Which was really, which was really, really lovely. And those are the kinds of learnings that would never show up on a survey, uh, but that I would, I would argue are very beautifully um, deep, rich and, and textured Jewish conversations that are certainly part of a, of a learning experience considered very holistically. Laura, thank you so much. There are many, many more questions I would love to ask. I hope we'll have other opportunities. I hope people will have the opportunity to learn more about this work. We'll read it. It's great to talk with you. Thank you all for joining us. Once again, I encourage you to check out the Mandel Center events page, learn about other upcoming events. There's a session of this series of Learning About Learning with Miriam Heller Stern. And with that, thank you all for joining us. Uh, Thank you again, Laura, and be well.